You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1044 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you on a Sunday evening into Monday. And I want to tell you that Chad Ford, Locked On NBA draft host, Rafael Barlow, Locked On NBA host, John Corrales, will be live this year covering the NBA draft. It's Locked On NBA draft 2021 brought to you by Built Bar, and it will bring the local expert analysis on each and every pick. Follow the Locked On NBA feed on YouTube today and watch our live coverage on July 29th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Today's show will be a solo podcast, and after a bunch of deep dive draft talk in the last couple of weeks, as well as the rest of this week coming up, today we'll take a step back and talk about a little bit of the salary cap situation for the Hawks and some non-draft decisions that Atlanta has to make in the next couple of weeks. But first, some news to hit on on the podcast. The coaching staff of the Hawks has been finalized. Initially, last week we talked about this on the show a little bit, Jake Fisher reported that Joe Prunty and Jamel McMillan were expected to join the Hawks staff, and that was officially announced on Friday afternoon. Prunty's been an assistant for more than two decades across the NBA, including with Nate McMillan in Portland. He was the interim head coach of the Bucks two different times, um, obviously a well-established figure across the league. And then Jamel McMillan is Nate's son. He worked under, under Monty Williams and Alvin Gentry in Phoenix and New Orleans and has a record of being around the league as well. And the rest of the staff is uh, the guys who are returning. Marlon Garnett, Matt Hill, and Chris Gent are all staying on board with Atlanta. No huge surprises there as a result. Um, we talked about Chelsea Lane moving on last week. That was uh, reported and uh, later confirmed. They're going to be replacing her with Marty Lawson. I'm not sure how to say his name. My apologies. As the team's director of athletic performance and sports medicine, um, Marty was with the Falcons for 11 years, first as the, as the athletic trainer for the team, and then as the director of sports medicine and performance until earlier this year. He left the Falcons in March after they overhauled their front office, which is about a normal thing that would happen. So that's the new replacement there, and they announced a bunch of other hires as well. Press release is still very much available. With all of that out of the way, there was a little bit of draft stuff um, through the prism of a trade rumor that actually popped up and I almost hesitate to say it's even a draft rumor because it's not exactly a rumor. We'll talk about this in a second. But uh, ESPN's mock draft reporting from Mike Schmitz and Jonathan Gaboni, they, first of all, put together the mock as usual and had the Hawks taking Cam Thomas of LSU at number 20 overall. Not a huge surprise there. Not probably the guy that I would take, but certainly a reasonable pick. Very, very talented score out of LSU. Um, the real, though, point of attention was the write-up on this. And it, it involved the phrase I'm about to read to you now. Quote, NBA executives say that they expect the Hawks to explore restarting the cycle of one of their rookie-scale players, such as Cam Reddish, in exchange for a first-round pick, as it seems unlikely they'll be able to pay all of their young wing players, end quote. There were some tweets about this, too, from Gavoni. It's a little bit weird on the reporting side. I know this is not something that everyone always cares about, but um, as someone who reads a ton of things and reporting and the way things are phrased, this is a bit, this is a bit strange. So, First, it starts with executives around the league, which does not necessarily mean the Hawks, and that they expect, not that they're reporting or saying this for sure, but they expect the Hawks to trade one of the young guys. But then they also explicitly mention Reddish for a first-round pick, which is kind of a non-sequitur in this same phrasing. I wouldn't rule out a trade of one of the young guys. I want to be clear about that. That's definitely possible. But as a team that's trying to win now, it may not sort of jive with that to trade Reddish for a pick explicitly. And also, they like Reddish. They always have... 
They still they could trade him. That would not be a huge surprise again if they moved on from one of the young guys. Obviously, Trey Young is off the table, but and DeAndre Hunter, I think, was pretty close off the table as well. But, you know, it's just a little bit interesting reporting the way that it was phrased. And people sort of jumped on this as a quote-unquote trade rumor. It was not really reported as if Cam Reddish was available in trade for that first for a first-round pick. Uh, dating back to last trade deadline, Reddish's name was banging about. I know Chris Kirshner jumped in on, the, on this on Twitter today as well and saying, look, you know, this has been out there for a while, and that's that's true. I've heard the same thing, that Cam has been at least kind of available in trade talks. With that said, there was kind of just the way it was phrased was a bit strange. It wasn't like report Cam Reddish is available. It was an ex- him used as, as an example of one of the young guys. So I know why this got traction. It's an ESPN report. Um, it's a high-profile player in Cam, a guy that the Hawks fan base really likes. So it, was, it sort of made the rounds, but it was not really even a flat-out trade rumor. Uh, it didn't even make it to that level for me. So... That was out there. Uh, that's kind of my only thoughts on it right now. And if, it's, if it sort of intensifies and actually gets reported as a rumor, then I will be uh, talking about it even more. But for now, the Hawks have a bunch of guys who are good players and who are young. That's sort of a good problem to have. And eventually they'll sort that out. But for now, I will leave it there. Okay. With all that out of the way, before we get to some salary cap kind of stuff on the podcast today, a word from our sponsors. And the first of which is Built Bar. Did you know that Built Bar has so many delicious flavors that there's something for absolutely everyone? When you talk to a Built Bar fan, they're always passionate about their favorites. But if you don't know the Built Bar flavors, well, you're absolutely missing out. They have coconut, cherry barcia, raspberry, mint brownie, double chocolate, salted caramel, strawberry, orange, cookies and cream, German chocolate, and available this week only, get the new Built Bar flavor, it's Grasshopper Cookie. What does it taste like? Well, this is Built Bar's version of the classic Thin Mint Cookie. All the flavor without all of that sugar. 150 calories, 17 grams of protein, and only 5 grams of sugar. My favorite flavor always changes, but this is one of my favorites. It's fantastic. And if you haven't tried all of the flavors just yet, you can get a mixed box where you'll get to choose. We'll get two of each of the nine flavors. Not only are the Built Bar flavors the best tasting, but they're also very healthy. 17 to 18 grams of protein. Calories range from 130 to 180. Only 4 or 5 grams of sugar and only 4 or 5 grams of net carbs. Amazing flavors, all tasty and all healthy. If you order today and get the grasshopper cookie or raspberry, whatever you like, Built Bar is the place to do that. And it's the official protein bar of the U.S. track and field team. If you go to BuiltBar.com right now, get 15% off on your next order with the promo code LOCKED15. That's 15% off your next order if you use the promo code LOCKED15. Check it all out at BuiltBar.com. All right, we'll dive in now to some interesting stuff for the upcoming season, and then we'll get into some more nuanced discussions with John Collins and Kevin Herter's extension, Trey Young's extension, Lou Williams, etc. So at the top here, sort of a primer of what's to come on the salary cap front for the Hawks the upcoming season of 21-22. They have nine players that are under contract in full for next year. They are in no order Trey Young, Gallinari, Bogdanovich, Capella, Gunnery Hunter, Akongwu, Reddish, Herder and Bruno Fernando. Then from there, they have Chris Dunn on a player option at $5 million. Most will assume that he picks that up. I am included in that. I believe he will do that. And he has until the end of July to make that decision, but I'm assuming he will opt into that money. It wouldn't be an absolute stunner if he didn't, but I think that's the projection that everyone that I've asked is going to have. And so with him, that's 10 guys. Then they have the number number 20 overall pick and a starting salary of that pick at about $2.7 million. So that's, that's 11 players. Overall under contract, if you assume Chris Dunn and the draft pick. And with those 11 guys, the Hawks have $97.1 million on the books, committed salary with those 11 players. The projected salary cap is about $112 million. Now, that's a 3% minimum increase that the Player Association and the league agreed to last summer. 
as a note, the cap could go up faster than that. But that was the agreement to raise the 3.3% annually for a couple of years as a band-aid because of the pandemic and the financial losses that the league was taking during that time. So as long as that 3% figure is in place, subcontracts are actually rising faster than the cap itself, which is the opposite of how it's been recent in the recent past. But still, that's the number as of right now, about $112.4 million. And the luxury tax will be about $136.6 million on that number. So with 11 players, again, those nine plus done and the draft pick, the Hawks would have $14.3 million in cap space and a shade under $40 million under the tax line. Now, I say cap space, you have to say this part now, and this is very important. There are some cap holds to consider, and one in particular is John Collins. So Collins has a cap hold of $12.4 million. And with the Hawks having that on the books, they are basically up to the cap. Now, what is a cap hold? Basically, because the Hawks have the bird rights on John Collins, they want to keep him on, on the books. And because of that, they could exceed the cap to keep John Collins because they have his bird rights. If they were to give away his cap hold, they could no longer go above the cap and that would be a terrible decision. So long story short, they're not going to give that cap hold away. So unless they pull off a trade of some kind, the working assumption for me and everybody else that they're, that they're going to operate as an over-the-cap team if John returns. Now, they have the bird rights as well for Lou Williams and Tony Snell. If they want to re-sign those guys, they can go over the cap to keep them if they, if they like to do that. They have non-bird rights on Solomon Hill, who they might want to keep for a cheap contract. They also have early bird rights on Brandon Goodwin. And with all those guys, by the way, uh, Collins is the only restricted free agent on the roster coming up in the offseason. Uh, Lou, Snell, and Hill are unrestricted free agents. Now, Goodwin could be restricted if the Hawks give him a qualifying offer. BG's qualifying offer is about $2.1 million, and the Hawks could give him that, but he also might just sign it. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to offer that or not. It's actually a pretty interesting decision. He said on Twitter earlier this month that he's back to full health. That's good to hear from Goodwin, but that's something that's sort of a, as a sidebar here. But the only major free agents, um, Collins is restricted, and guys like Lou are unrestricted. If they stay over the cap, as I would project, and so would anybody else right now, with John on the roster anyway, they would have the non-taxpayer mid-level exception to use if they wanted to do that. That's about $9.5 million in year one. They can exceed the cap to sign a very useful player with that exception if they want to do that. They also have a biannual exception available to them if they want to use it, about $3.7 million. And then the salary cap, though, does matter in terms of what they can and cannot do. So, for, ex for example, the luxury tax, though, does not really for the Hawks, other than for the wallet of Tony Wrestler. You probably heard me talk about this with, with Tower Jones on the podcast last week, but I'll say it again now. Uh, I have no concern personally for Tony Wrestler's wallet. It becomes a practical consideration, though, because owners often balk at paying the tax, and to this point, Wrestler's never really had to make that decision at this point in time. So I want to be clear on that. I don't care, and I would never advocate for Wrestler to avoid the tax because of his own money. I don't care about his own money. But with that said, organizations do unquestionably consider the real-world applications of the luxury tax, which is why it ends up mattering on some level. So, long story short, I think the Hawks do not want to be in the tax next season if they can help it. I'm not reporting that, just some deduct some deductive reasoning on my part. You know, beyond that, if they keep everybody around in 22-23, etc., the tax will become a concern. But for this year, I would guess, slash I would say educated guess, that they do not want to go over the tax line if they can help it for this next coming season. So, with Chris Dunn, on the team, they still have almost $40 million under the tax. That's a lot of money. And we'll come back to this later on, but Collins' max salary is about $28 million. So they'd have some money under the tax if they want to work with that, even with John at the max if you got there in year one. Plus, they could probably dump some salary pretty easily with Chris Dunn or Bruno Fernando if they wanted to do that to save some tax money, etc. 
They have some extension eligible guys like Trey Young and Kevin Herter, which we'll come back to in a second. And Capella actually is technically extension eligible as of late August in the offseason. I'd be pretty surprised if they offered him a big extension because of a Kongwu coming up. I know he's injured now, but a Kongwu coming up pretty soon, plus uh, Capella having two years left on his contract. That's the only other extension eligible guy they have, but keep that in mind for now. Okay, with all that said, it's a lot of numbers, but I promise you I will do my best to explain all of this stuff. And that was more focused on this next coming season. Now I'm going to look at the future cap a little bit for the Hawks. So this is kind of a brief future overview. I'll keep it short. So the Hawks have about $83 million committed for the 22-23 season. That's the following season after next year. But that number does not include Trey Young, who is going to be making a lot of money. So we'll get into Trey later on, but it's going to be at least $28 million. could be as much as $35 million for that one season. So keep that in mind. Now, the guaranteed salary lower is lower for the Hawks because Gallinari is only guaranteed for $5 million in 22-23 out of his $21.4 million salary. So if you, if you assume that they keep Gallo and have Trey on the max, that gets them all the way to the salary cap, basically, on its own, with no money for Herter or no money for Collins or the draft pick in 22 or anything else. So the following season, in 23-24, they do uh, project to lose Gallinari and Capella off the books. And then Bogdanovich has a player option. So that's three years in, in, in advance. That does not include money still for Hunter, Reddish, who could have new deals by then, Collins, Herter, etc. But in short, the Hawks do not project to have salary cap space for a long time at this moment in time. Now, they could change that with trades for sure, but right now with their core guys, they do not project to have space for a long time now, especially if you were to factor in the money for Herter and or Collins in addition to Young making the max. And they project to be a tax team in 22-23. Again, they could trade some guys, but that's the first year that really looks like a, a luxury tax situation for Tony Wrestler to deal with. So I'm not going to do too much basketball stuff on this podcast episode, but a popular theory, by the way, has always been that Capella could be trade bait next year if they wanted to hand the keys to a Kongwu after drafting him in the top six, all that stuff. Now, that might be a little bit less certain or less probable even now with a Kongwu's injury, but all that said, you know, they drafted Kongwu. They might want to give him the keys sooner rather than later. And Capella might have some, still have some value. That's in play too. So there are ways to deal with this. But for now, if they were to keep everyone or even almost everyone, they're going to be in the tax in 2223 unless they have some crazy machinations to get around it. Okay, that's a good primer for now. And uh, after the break, we'll get into Trey Young extension talk and Kevin Herter as well as John Collins later on in the podcast. But first, a word from our sponsors on today's show. And the first of which is betonline.ag. Even with the season over now for the Atlanta Hawks, Bet Online is still your home for the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your sports action. Baseball season, for example, is still in full swing. You can check all the action at Bet Online, get all the latest news, odds, and information for all of your sporting needs, including baseball, basketball, hockey, UFC, MMA golf, tennis, auto racing, entertainment bets, and much, much more. Before the next pitch or dribble, head over to BetOnline on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the latest great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore as this is your chance to get into the game as teams prepare for their run to the playoffs. And even when they're in the playoffs, head to the website right now at betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Yes, that's checking out betonline.ag for 50% and extra cash and a welcome bonus on your first deposit if you use the promo code Locked On. The promo code is Locked On for 50% welcome bonus. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, so a lot to get into here with some extensions as well as 
John Collins, the big looming domino at the end of the podcast. So Trey Young, we'll start there. This is important to note. While Trey can sign an extension as soon as free agency opens this year, so he, he can do that up to the max, it would not begin in terms of his actual salary jumping up until the 22-23 season. Same as Collins last year. We talked about this at length last year. But no matter what, sorry, Trey Young's going to be making $8.3 million for the 21-22 season, which is the final year of his rookie contract. So this coming season, Trey is locked in to that money. Beyond that, though, his five-year extension could be for a max of $168 million or so. Um, Then, beyond that, if he gets All-NBA next year, which is definitely possible, um, the deal could jump up to as much as five years and $201.5 million for Trey Young. Now, without going deep into this, Collins, there was a negotiation happening, obviously, that didn't, they didn't come to an agreement. With Trey Young, it's essentially going to be max or bust. We kind of all know that at this point in time. Everyone believes that, he's, that it's going to get done. But there's, a, there's not as much nuance with this one. Um, for year one, by the way, Young would, get, would be about $28.9 million without making All-NBA next year. If he makes it, his first-year salary will go up to about $34.7 million. So that's $6 million a year more. That's a lot of money. So that's something that he's going to obviously want to get that anyway. But if the Hawks are, you know, it's kind of a weird rooting interest for a team. This has happened before with guys like, you know, Donovan Mitchell this year, for instance. Um, the Hawks are actually better off financially if Trey does not make All-NBA this year. Whereas, uh, obviously, he would want to get that and the families would want to get that as they should. So a pretty interesting uh, sort of discussion that could be happening there. And I thought he should have been in consideration this year. He really kind of fell pretty short of that. But I think he'll definitely be more in the mix next year if the Hawks have some success, as they should. So, as I said before, there's really only one part of the negotiation. It's basically whether he gets the Max or not an extension at all, and the Max can be playing. I guess they could try to get a player option on the, on, on the fifth year uh, if you're Trey Young. I think that's probably likely at this point. Donovan Mitchell got it last year. Trey's a better player and a prospect in my view. So, Clutch, who represents Trey, is not likely to take any less that he could possibly get. So, if I had to guess, it'll be a 4-plus-1 contract to the Max for Trey that will go up if it's all NBA next year. So a lot of money coming in the future, obviously a good problem. In terms of cast space, it won't really matter about Trey in terms of the deal that he's on. Luxury tax stuff could come into, into play, but again, this is a good problem. Trey Young is awesome. They're going to give him anything he wants to stay around as they should. He's a franchise player and uh, it's sort of an interesting negotiation because it's not really a negotiation. He's going to get whatever deal he wants to get for the most part. So I would guess it gets done pretty quickly. It will surprise me if it's not done and announced or at least reported by the first couple of days of August. But we'll keep an eye on that as it goes through. And uh, that's kind of the one cut and dry thing that the Hawks are probably going to do in the early early part of free agency is uh, lock up Trey Young as fast as possible. The other extension is more nuanced. That's Kevin Herter. So Trey's is more easy to to discuss. He's a max player. Everybody knows it. Herter is more similar to what Collins had last year and that he's a good player that's extension eligible, but it wouldn't surprise anybody if the extension did not happen, even if it's allowed to happen. You know, Collins, I think, was more established and probably at a higher price point, and that didn't get done last year, obviously. On one hand, the Hawks are likely to operate as an over-the-cap team next year, and they're likely to be over-the-cap again the following year when Herter would be a free agent. So there isn't much incentive in terms of cap space in waiting to create flexibility. On the other hand, Atlanta could be looking at tax concerns, and while I want to say again... I don't really care about his money. It is possible that wrestler and ownership do not want to fly deep into the taxes if they can help it. So there's obviously the part of the negotiation with regard to Herter and his side undoubtedly looking to capitalize after the big playoff run, as they should for him. And the Hawks might want to lock in some more cost certainty. 
in terms of getting a team bargain in exchange for the financial security that the uh, that Herder would actually get long term. Like he hasn't made a ton of money in his career. This is a very typical rookie extension negotiation dynamic in that one side, you know, if Herder signs an extension, that's life changing money. It's locking in financial security for generations. On the team side, they want to get the best deal possible and probably squeeze the guy a little bit if they can help it. So Herder being an established guy for sure, but not a star, makes this interesting. So financially, he's making four point two million dollars this next coming season, either way. And any extension would not try would not start till the following year, just like just like Trey Young. So provided the Hawks give him a qualifying offer after next year, which he will, they will almost certainly do, he'll be a restricted, a restricted free agent just like Collins is right now. They could match any offer a year from now while negotiating still with Herder and his team one on one. We could talk about what he might sign for. For sure, and that's probably a discussion for a later date. We talked about with Andrew Kelly a little bit last week, by the way. But based on age, pedigree, and performance, I can't imagine he's signing a deal for less than $10, $12 million a year, and even that's pretty low. I also don't think he's going to get $100 million either. So there's, there's kind of a wide spectrum of what Herder could be offered slash could want to accept. And I don't know just yet if the teams and the team and his side would be close on a deal. And that's kind of where the dynamic has to move in the coming days to see where the two sides are. So we can go deeper on that in the future, but that's kind of the broad overview with regard to Herder. I'm not going to go into the guys like Goodwin and Snell and Hill because they're likely to sign pretty cheap deals wherever they end up. So it's possible that any of those guys could return to Atlanta. Um, the Hawks do have a mechanism to bring back all those guys if they want to do that. But Lou Williams is a little bit different because I could see him having offers elsewhere that are more real money and he could get some deals that are more than the minimum. So basketball-wise... We'll save most of this stuff. A backup point guard is obviously very important for the Hawks to fix in the future, or at least plug that hole. And other than Collins, you know, Lou is the incumbent guy who is likely to demand the most money of the guys hitting for agency this year. He's also from here, of course, from South Gwinnett. Gwinnett kind of stand up. And uh, Lou has expressed some retirement thoughts before. He's a pretty interesting guy. I'm not really sure what he's motivated by. You know, after the season, he had some positive stuff on on social media about maybe wanting to play again, maybe wanting to play in Atlanta again, etc. We will see what he actually wants in the near future. On the Hawks side, they could sign him to any deal they want to, which is notable, but the team also has Collins coming up potentially, and then Lou on a big deal could send them into the luxury tax. So keep that in mind. But, you know, whether they want Lou to be the backup point guard is one question. How much they want to pay him, what his market is, is another question. Lots of stuff to get into, but Lou is the other guy to circle beyond the two extensions with Herter and Young, and then also John Collins. Uh, we'll end with Collins, who has the most to discuss, probably, of all of these guys, so we'll go there now. Uh, John, simply put, this is the domino of the offseason. Everyone knows that. You know, the Hawks do have their have their have the draft before free agency, but in terms of unless they pull off a massive trade at the draft, their number one decision coming up. In the, in the next few days and weeks, is John Collins. Um, his qualifying offer is about $7.7 million. The Hawks were always going to offer that, and Sean Sarani reported that, that they did that last week. So that was a no-brainer. In short, that offer makes him a restrictive free agent. Um, Collins is not going to... He's too good to accept that offer, so that's going to linger out there. But as I said before, his salary cap hold is $12.4 million, so he's going to count that against the books for now until he either leaves in free agency or they sign him to a new deal. And the Hawks will not renounce that, that, that salary unless they absolutely have to do that for some reason. Um, Contract-wise, Collins is eligible for up to four years and about $121 million with another team that is not the Hawks in the form of an offer sheet. And that's if the cap estimate still is about $112 million that we talked about earlier on the podcast. 
an offer sheet has to be for at least two seasons, and his max salary is about $28.1 million. He could sign a 2-plus-1 or a 3-plus-1 kind of contract with player options if you want to make it painful for the Hawks. That's often a construction is that teams that sign offer sheets try to make them as painful as possible for the incumbent team. Last year, the Hawks gave Bogdanovich a player option and a trade kicker. That was on purpose to make it harder for these Kings to match, and that ended up working out for them as they did not match that contract. So the Hawks can offer, though, more money and more years than any other team because of the bird rights that they have on Collins. Next year, his salary is $28.1 million either way. The Hawks can only offer that as everybody else can. But from there, the Hawks can actually give John 8% raises between seasons, whereas other teams can only go up to 5% raises. And they can offer more money than any other team over four years, or they can go five years if they want to. So the five-year full max for Collins is five years and about $163 million. That's a lot of money for John Collins, but they can offer that if they want to keep him, and that's the, that's their biggest trump card is being able to go five years and also getting the bigger raises. Um, one of the more interesting things that I think is that the Hawks can go five years and try to keep his annual salary down just a little bit, like a one like a five for one thirty kind of offer sheet might be per, sorry offer by the Hawks side would be pretty interesting in some in some respects that give Collins the guarantee of money that he wants and also give the Hawks a little bit more wiggle room under the tax if they want to trade somebody or have tax concerns etc. One thing to note is that the Hawks and Collins can agree to a contract on their own as soon as free agency starts on August 2nd. They don't have to wait for an offer sheet if they don't want to, if you are the Hawks. But if Collins actually signs, and I mean actually signs, an offer sheet with another team, if that happens, the Hawks only have two options. It's either match it as is or let him go. Keep that in mind. Um, until an offer sheet is signed, they can, they can negotiate sign and trades. They can negotiate with Collins one-on-one. But if he actually signs an offer sheet with another team, then all the other options are out the window and it's sign, it's, sorry, it's match or no match. That's all you can do. So sign and trade options are interesting. There's a whole other ball of wax there with the Hawks potentially looking to sign and trade him. Teams like the Wolves that want Collins reportedly have to sign and trade for him without creating all that space, etc. But keep that in mind. Sign and trades are off the table as soon as he signs an offer sheet with another team. So... Um, you know, Hawks fans that don't want to keep Collins often ask about sign and trade options. I will be honest with you about that. It's kind of difficult in some respects. Um, there's a base year compensation rule in which Collins will only count about half of the money in terms of his actual salary in trade talks. There's some money factors in play. Also, I would stress this. The vast majority of sign and trades do not involve the incumbent team, that being the Hawks here, getting what I would describe as full value for that player. I've seen some pretty ambitious sign-and-trade offers from Hawks fans, and while it's possible, I will be surprised if the Hawks get an overwhelming return for Collins. Basically, a sign-and-trade is to to allow them to get something in return, whether it be a trade exception or a pick or maybe a supporting player. They're not going to be able to sign-and-trade him in a massive package, probably. It's not impossible, but usually sign-and-trades are not going to be huge returns coming back. It's more of a mitigation effort and trying to get something back for him rather than losing him for nothing. All that said, only four guys actually have signed offer sheets. And uh, while with the Hawks in my time, even following the team, and only one wasn't matched. It was Jason Terry, Josh Smith, and Jeff Teague all signed offer sheets elsewhere, and they were all matched. Tim Hardaway Jr. is the most recent actually signing offer sheet with the Knicks, and the Hawks let him go. But that was an offer sheet that was a massive overpay, and everyone knew it by New York. And uh, that was a weird one with the regime change with Travis Shank, etc. So... I think the Hawks did benefit, obviously, from an offer sheet from Madonna, which last year on the other side of things, and the, and the Kings let, let him go. I thought that was a bad decision by the Kings. I still think that I still think that at, at this moment in time. So that was the most recent example of the Hawks being involved 
in a similar situation. So overall thoughts before we get out of here on Collins and the whole situation. He is going to get a lot of money from someone. That's very clear at this point in time. He is one of the best for agents in the market. There are certainly some divides on what John's market could be, but he's a top five guy on the market in terms of free agency this year. And given his age and productivity and two-way ability now on defense, a lot going on in his favor. The Hawks do have the upper hand compared to everybody else because they can match an offer sheet. They can talk to him now. They can, talk, they can sign him independently. They have all those different options to keep him. Um, I want to make sure that I, I say this as well, but even if the Hawks don't love matching a big deal on Collins or signing him to one of their own, there is still an argument to doing it anyway because it would be he would be tradable and you would lose the asset entirely if you were to let Collins go for nothing. That isn't ideal necessarily, and we'll spend a lot of time on the non-basketball stuff, but the Hawks pretty much can't replace Collins without a, a pretty creative trade if they were to let him go. This is not a situation in which the Hawks lose Collins in free agency and then have max cap space to replace him. That does not happen this time around. They have to make a trade or promote from within, etc. to sort of fill his shoes. So there is an opportunity cost to letting him go beyond the money. If he leaves, they simply cannot sign a player to replace him that is going to be as good as he is. That's my personal take, but I believe that to be true. Um, even if, if, so even if you don't love Collins as a hundred million dollar player, he is, un, he is undeniably very good and helps the Hawks quite a bit. They don't have anybody else on the team that can do what he does on both ends of the floor combined. And he's 23 years old. He keeps improving. There's a lot to like there. He plays hard. He works hard, etc. So this will be a topic from now until it's settled, whether it be early August is the earliest thing this could possibly be. You know, if the Hawks agree to a deal with Collins on the first night of free agency, they can sign it, they can send it in, and that'll be the end of that. If they don't do that, it could linger a little bit. And honestly, the entire offseason could swing on what happens with Collins because they're going to have to scramble a little bit if he's not coming back. Um, maybe Travis Sick will have contingency plans in place uh, for power forward and roster management exercises. But I still think if you do the math on everything and factor in the match rights and the discussions that could happen ahead of time, I think it is more likely than not that he comes back. But it is not 100% either. So I've often said on, the, on this show the last few weeks that I, would, I am assuming he will come back because I think that's more likely than not. But there is definitely a scenario where they let him go. So we'll see how that all happens. I think it's probably more likely even now than it was a few months ago because of the playoff run and the way that he played and the way that he's viewed around the league and running it back as a more attractive option when you just made a heck of a run in the playoffs. But it affects everything. It affects the mid-level. It affects their power forward spot. It affects their tax issues. It affects Trey Young and keeping him happy for the long term. All kinds of stuff. A Kongwu being now injured, Collins has even more value because he can play some center for you in backup roles and all that stuff. So this is a nuanced thing, but... If I'm the Hawks, I'm trying to keep him. Hopefully, if you're a Hawks fan, you, you get him locked in for less than the absolute four-year max. But we'll see. If, you know, that's an interesting decision that we'll get into later on. But hopefully that's just the stage for all of you. If I, if, if I miss anything on this front, salary cap-wise, I'm always open to questions. I'm not a full-blown cap expert, but I do, I do my homework and ask around. Um, at ATL Hawks Fanatic, Bob, um, who writes for Peachtree Hoops, has been hugely helpful to me in getting all this stuff centered. So shouts to Bob. But all that said, I will do my best to find the answer for you if you don't know the answer to that. So fire questions away at me at BT Roland on Twitter or at Locked on Hawks on Twitter, and I will try my best to answer them. So I covered a lot of ground on this podcast. I know that to be the case with Collins and Young and Herder and Lou and future stuff and current stuff, etc. Hopefully that all tracks. And uh, please subscribe to the podcast. We'll be back to draft stuff starting on Tuesday and Wednesday as we get into the draft on Thursday. So stay tuned for all that, and we'll see you next time.